Two months uh, separate the events narrated in chapter 10. Jesus told his parable of the good shepherd as an indictment against the wicked leaders of the Jews in the first half of chapter 10. And then Jesus converses with those wicked leaders two months later in the second half of chapter 10. Chronologically, these halves of John 10 are not related. But thematically, our passage today provides closure between the good shepherd and the thieves and robbers playing out in real life. For example, Jesus again makes reference to sheep, which are a metaphor for his people, but he contrasts them now with those who are not his sheep. Jesus does not refer to himself as the good shepherd or the door, um, but highlights his actions, which illustrate that he is the door and the good shepherd. But Jesus makes clear that his actions only apply to the sheep. In the second half of chapter 10, Jesus answers a question that he's asked, but he answers it by speaking of his unity with the Father, a theme introduced in the first half of John 10. So the first half of John 10 introduces several themes that the second half provides the logical conclusion for. When writing his gospel, John decided not to include things that Jesus said or did in these two months uh, in order to place this conversation next to the Good Shepherd to highlight these themes and provide closure for the reader. From how the Gospel of John is organized, there's finality in this conversation, which I hope to illustrate as we proceed. And we know two months had passed between verses 21 and 22 because of the time markers. Jesus went to Jerusalem in John 7 for the Feast of Tabernacles celebrated at harvest time in October. Leaving the feast in chapter 9, Jesus healed the blind man and then told the good shepherd parable in chapter 10. He contrasted himself, the good shepherd who pursued the blind man to the religious leaders, the thieves and robbers who only harmed the blind man. Now it's December, the weather had cooled off, and we find Jesus walking in the temple under one of the covered porches to avoid the chilly breeze. So starting in verse 22, at that time the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now the Jews here refer to the religious leaders and it's a shorthand that John uses throughout the gospel. So the Jews questioning Jesus about being the Christ is ironic considering the context. So hang with me as I provide some background to sharpen the irony in verse 24. Jesus is in Jerusalem to join uh, the feast of dedication. Now I didn't know much about the feast of dedication until I began to study, but it did not take me very long to realize that it's not in the Old Testament. I can't point you to a chapter and verse unless I point you to some history books written in the hundred years or in the several hundred years between the close of the Old Testament and the birth of Jesus. 
But in these years, the Jews experienced a roller coaster of suffering from their return to the land from exile, let's call it 500 BC, and the Roman occupation of the land in 63 BC. In between those years, the Jews went through a lot. So for example, Alexander the Great rolled through, and the Jewish people were subjected to his rule. He died, and the Jews were then subjected to one of the generals, one of Alexander's generals based out of Egypt. But then, here's the main point, the Seleucid Empire rose out of Syria and gained control over Judea, led by Antiochus IV. Now, he took the name Antiochus Epiphanes, meaning God Manifest. That was his nickname. He coerced the Jews to conform to his Greek religion. Now, here's a quote from one of those books written during that time, 1 Maccabees chapter 1, to illustrate this coercion that Antiochus did. The king directed them to follow customs strange to the land, to forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices and drink offerings in the sanctuary, to profane the Sabbaths and festivals, to defile the sanctuary and the priests, to build altars and sacred precincts and shrines for idols, to sacrifice swine and other unclean animals, to leave their sons uncircumcised. They were to make themselves abominable by everything unclean and profane so that they would forget the law and change all the ordinances. He added, whoever does not obey the command of the king shall die. That's 1 Maccabees chapter 1. And Antiochus followed through on his edict. He instituted sacrifices to the Greek gods in the Jerusalem temple. And it was call, it's called a desolating sacrilege in chapter 1 of 1 Maccabees. This is the abomination of desolation that Daniel predicted in chapter 11 of his prophecy. What was it? Antiochus erected a statue of the Greek god Zeus in the most holy place in the temple and on the altar devoted to sacrifices worshiping Yahweh, sacrificed unclean animals, including pigs, to Zeus. So the temple, the Jewish people, and most of all, the name of the one true God was profaned. Everyone who opposed this religious subjection was killed, and great wrath came upon Israel from this antichrist-like figure, Antiochus Epiphanes, the God manifest. So in this moment of persecution, a war hero arose named Mattathias, who launched the Maccabean revolt against the king, but he was killed. So his son took leadership of the rebellion. His name was Judas Maccabees, nicknamed the Hammer. He was a remarkable military leader who rallied the Jewish troops, outnumbered by tens of thousands, to victory over the forces of Antiochus. Judas drove them from the temple and from Jerusalem. 
So after the successful rebellion, this military leader helped establish the new government and restart their traditional religious practices, including the cleansing of the temple by removing the idols, removing the desecrated altar, and building a new one. So then, the Jews joyfully celebrated the temple's dedication for eight days. And Judas and his council decided to make this celebration an annual one in the month of December, starting in the year 164 BC. So this came to be called the Feast of Dedication, or more commonly, Hanukkah, celebrating the temple's cleansing and the Jews' newfound freedom. And it was gained through the leadership of God's chosen one, God's anointed leader, Judas Maccabees, the Messiah for his generation. So fast forward about 200 years to the month of December around the year AD 30, specifically to the annual celebration, the Feast of Dedication. Notice the irony. The Jewish people are again under the political control of a mighty empire, Rome. A man named Jesus walks through the same Jerusalem temple when the religious leaders come up and ask him, hey Jesus, tell us, are you the Christ? They ask him, essentially, are you God's chosen one? Are you God's anointed leader? Are you the Messiah for our generation? while celebrating the previous Messiah who led their ancestors to freedom. Verse 24, So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So number one, the Jews' final question. Notice the word final. Earlier I mentioned that this passage provides closure. In the Gospel of John, this is the last question that the Jewish leaders will ask Jesus before they arrest him and put him on trial. Jesus goes on to answer their question, but not with a yes or a no. They ask a good question, one that we all need to answer for ourselves But considering the timing of when they asked it, they are likely asking about a military or political leader. Is Jesus God's chosen servant? God's anointed one who will deliver us from our political control? But Jesus called himself the good shepherd two months ago, uh, talking in a completely different realm than military or politics. And so he answers again, Number two, Jesus' final response. Just as this is the religious leader's last question, these are Jesus' final words to them until he stands trial before them. So the finality of our passage grows. Verse 25 through 30. Jesus answered them, I told you and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So Jesus' main point is in verse 30, and this serves as the answer to their question. So obviously he doesn't plainly say yes, but he does say yes, that he is the Christ, by claiming oneness with God the Father. So in the lead up to the main point in verse 30, Jesus provides evidence to support his claim. But first, to the religious leaders, he provides blunt commentary about the situation that they are in, since they are again asking a question that he's answered for them plenty of times. So this passage as a whole bears witness that the religious leaders of the Jews are not among his sheep. Jesus begins in verse 25 by referencing two things, his words and his works. In tandem, these present a united testimony about who Jesus is. So Jesus has not explicitly said to the religious leaders that he is the Messiah, since he's walking a tightrope with their expectations, but he has called himself, let's think about it, the good shepherd, the door of the sheep, the light of the world, living water, the bread of life, all of this in the previous chapters that they've heard. Then you add the miraculous signs that have accompanied many of these declarations as a second witness. So they have heard his declarations, they have seen his signs, yet they did not believe. So they asked the question again, yet his words and his works point in one direction. The Father had sent him. He is the Messiah. So the religious leader's problem is not their lack of knowledge or incomplete evidence. It's not an intellectual issue. Their problem is an unbelieving heart. Verse 25 and 26 again. I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, so notice here that Jesus is cracking the door open to his main point to come in verse 30. The works bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. So just as the first half of John 10 was full of contrasts, Jesus makes another. Notice that his sheep do believe his words and his works. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. The contrast is clear. Jesus' people will hear his voice, will listen to his words, will humbly consider his claims, will value his works, will follow his commands, will trust his invitation when he calls, and will follow. But for those who are not Jesus' people, they will hear with contempt and revile his words. They will take his actions and dismiss them or explain them away or equate them to the work of demons. They will curse him and wish him dead. So this passage bears witness that the religious leaders are not among his sheep. They do not believe. Jesus does not give them eternal life. 
They will perish. Neither the Father nor the Son will protect them. But His people receive all of these benefits as part of the abundant life introduced in verse 10, as the sheep enjoying life in the pasture of verse 9. So there's deep theology in verses 27 through 29 referring to the salvation of the sheep and to the preservation of the sheep. The applications of these doctrines for the sheep are not Jesus' main point here. Remember the context. Jesus is talking to people that he has identified are not his sheep. The theology of salvation and preservation does not apply to them. So why does Jesus say it? As evidence supporting his answer to their question that he and the Father are one. Jesus and the Father are one because they do similar actions and they have the same desire to save and preserve the sheep. Starting in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now a brief explanation to try and highlight this unity between Jesus and the Father. So a few months ago, when we were in John chapter 6, I explained uh, the theology of salvation in that chapter using an iceberg ena- analogy. So an iceberg floats in the ocean, but the passing ship can only see what's floating above the water. Below the water is a mystery. The ship doesn't exactly know what's down there other than more ice because they can't really see it. Apply that theology to salvation. There's a part we can observe, and then there's a part that we can observe. So look at verse 27 for what we can observe. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. This is the experience of the sheep that we can observe. The act of believing in Jesus. Verse 28 reveals that much more is going on below the surface in those moments when Jesus says, I give them eternal life. Then we learn that the Father is also involved in verse 29. My Father, who has given them to me, so all these actions are involved when a sheep is saved. But what's Jesus' main point? That he and the Father are both doing actions to save the sheep. Therefore, Jesus and the Father are one. So following salvation, there's the doctrine that is often called perseverance of the, she- of the sheep. How do the sheep remain in the flock after they have been rescued by the shepherd? Verse 27, the sheep follow me. So it's the responsibility of the sheep to keep following their shepherd. But what else is going on simultaneously under the surface? Verse 28, the sheep will never perish and no one will snatch them out of Jesus' hand. So Jesus holds on to them tightly. But more than that, verse 29, the Father is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So the Father 
and the son together hold the sheep and the sheep follow. That's how our sheep perseveres. But what's Jesus' main point here? That he and the father are both doing actions to preserve the sheep. So Jesus and the father are one. Question, Jesus, are you the Messiah? Answer, all that I say and do is the embodiment of my Father's will for the sheep, so much so that I and the Father are one. So your next blank. Jesus' final response to them is, I and the Father are one. But unfortunately, the religious leaders did not accept the answer. But they did understand it. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So do they not illustrate Jesus' own point from verse 26, that they are not among his sheep? But notice, in the midst of stones, Jesus' courage and compassion to keep the conversation going in the midst of such threats. He does not flinch, but he remains. Verses 32 and 33. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. He's reinforcing his main point again. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. The Jews apparently love a miracle-working Messiah, but not what these works imply about Jesus, that he's united with the Father. So that's a concept that they just cannot swallow, so they move to kill him for it. In verses 34 and through 36, Jesus makes a reference to the Old Testament, what he calls your law to further support his oneness with God. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. Okay, this is a, a, a little hard evidence that Jesus brings up. But in verse 34, Jesus directly quotes from Psalm 82, verse 6. And in that verse, God is the I who is talking, and he's calling, yes, he's calling people, human beings, gods, with a little g. But these are the human leaders of his people. He also calls these leaders sons of the Most High. So why is Jesus quoting this difficult verse? Because God himself is calling human beings gods and sons from the Jews' own scripture, So it is entirely reasonable for Jesus to speak of himself as God's son by declaring, I and the Father are one. So I read that commentary and and so forth, but then I read all eight verses of Psalm 82. In verse one, God takes his place 
in the divine council, ready to judge the gods, the appointed leaders and judicial, uh, the religious and judicial leaders of his people. And then God speaks, starting in verse 2. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. God declares then his verdict upon them in verses 5 through 8. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any other prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. The religious leaders are guilty of despicable leadership. They are the thieves and robbers who prey on the sheep from the parable in the first part of chapter 10. And God will judge them. But Jesus will implore them to believe one last time. Number three, Jesus' final plea. Verses 37 and 38. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So Jesus is pleading with them to honestly consider the works that he has done. If he's done things contrary to the Father's will, do not believe him. He's the first one to acknowledge that. He's giving them an exit ramp. But they must consider the validity of his works in order to take the exit. But if they consider his works, they may find that Jesus has been doing the Father's own works the whole time. But the works must be honestly considered with their minds, not with the expectations that they have acting as a filter not with the, their emotions corrupting their judgment. And then Jesus even throws them a softball in verse 38 by saying, basically, subtract me out of it. Look only at the works. Honestly consider the works. Could any human have done them? Was opening the eyes of a blind man actually the work of demonic forces of evil, which they attributed it as? Consider the works, not the person who did them. Were they the works of the Father that you claim to know and worship? Who else could have opened the eyes of the blind man who never saw in his entire life other than the one true God and the Messiah whom he sent? So Jesus' final plea is this from verse 38, your next blank, believe the works And if you believe the works, let's finish the verse, then you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So Jesus repeats his main point from verse 30. In fact, Jesus references the Father nine times in the conversation. 
And every single time, Jesus makes his point that he is united with the Father. He says it in different ways, but he says the same thing every time. So do you think Jesus answered their question? Are you the Messiah? Examine my works. Believe my works. I and the Father are one. The Father is in me and I am in the Father. So verse 30 and the end of verse 38 are parallel. And the Jews' responses to the verses immediately following are also parallel. Verse 31, they were prepared to stone Jesus. And now in verse 39, again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. His time had not yet come for their plot against him. But again, notice the finality of the passage. The religious leader's time was up. Verse 40. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. The religious leaders will hear no more words from Jesus and witness no more works of Jesus in the Gospel of John. His revelation to them had concluded. They chose their own way, and Jesus is allowing them to go. Their rejection is fixed. So after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11, in the city of Bethany, the commotion reaches the religious leaders in Jerusalem, and from that day, they ferociously make plans to put him to death. So Jesus responds in 1154 by withdrawing to the wilderness with his disciples. So they have no interaction in chapter 11. So in the spring, during the Passover, Jesus enters Jerusalem one last time, this time on the back of a donkey. So the Pharisees see the parade and hate him for his popularity, but he does not converse with them. He goes aside and engages with some Jews and also with some Gentiles. And then according to 1236, Jesus departed and hid himself from them. So from here, at the end of chapter 10, Jesus will not converse with the religious leaders again until after they arrest him and put him on trial in chapter 18. They had overwhelming revelation, but resolute rejection. So Jesus withdrew. Their opportunity had passed. So let's take a step back and consider a wider context in the Gospel of John as we begin to transition to final considerations for us. So John has organized a unit in his Gospel, chapters 5 through 10. Our passage closes the unit. The theme that unites all these chapters is that each takes place at a significant Jewish feast or festival. So in chapter 5, Jesus healed a paralyzed man at a pool. 5.1 does not name what feast it is, but later John calls it in chapter 5, the Sabbath day. So Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath day of rest. So John 5 takes place on the Sabbath. The context of John 6 is Passover, which celebrates God's deliverance 
from Egyptian slavery as he leads his people out into the wilderness. So then Jesus feeds the multitudes again in the wilderness to provide for his people. So chapter 6 is Passover. The events of chapter 7, 8, 9, and the beginning of chapter 10 all occur at the Feast of Tabernacles, which celebrates God's provisions during the ancestors' years of wandering in the wilderness. So Jesus healed the man born blind at the Feast of Tabernacles, and here, at the end of chapter 10, the Feast of Dedication, Jesus points back to the healing of the blind man. So what John is doing by putting all of these festivals and feast celebrations together is to declare to the reader that Jesus fulfills all that the Jews celebrated and hoped for, not just as a Messiah for their generation, but as the Messiah for every generation. The religious leaders witnessed all of these miraculous works at these festivals, and more so. At every festival, Jesus taught the deeper meaning of what his works meant. He declared his identity in powerful ways, and he pleaded for people to believe in him. And the religious leaders heard it all. They were there. And John has organized bookends to this unit to solidify this festival theme. So to begin the unit, all the way back in John 5, 17, the religious leaders heard Jesus declare this, my father is working until now, and I am working. And then to close the unit, Jesus makes a parallel declaration in John 10, 38. Believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Parallel declarations of Jesus, bookends, declaring unity with God that the religious leaders heard with their own ears. And how do they respond to that revelation? Both times the same way. In the immediate following verse, John 5, 18 this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Compare that to John 10, 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and John 10, 39, and they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Parallel rejections, bookends, they had plenty of truth revealed from Jesus. They had seen all of his powerful works and heard all of his pleading words. And they did not believe. They, they took the truth and discarded it. And they went the other way. So Jesus now goes the other way. Withdrawing from the religious leaders to close John's unit here in chapter 10. No more revelation their opportunities had ended. So here's the warning for us. Believe in Jesus. Your opportunities are limited. So this finality has stuck with me this week. So on this day, at this feast, their rejection of Jesus was fixed. 
They will remain those thieves and robbers who prey on the sheep. They will remain opposed to Jesus and remain opposed to the Father who sent him because Jesus and the Father are one. Just as Jesus instructed his disciples on their mission trip to leave towns that reject them by shaking the dust on their, off their feet, Jesus is now shaking the dust off his feet toward the religious leaders. So I read in one commentary, Jesus has finished his revelation and he has spoken God's word and completed God's works for them. Now he separates himself. Their end is written. They are not his sheep. So the Lord witnessed to the religious leaders, faithfully telling them the truth and graciously pleading with them to believe until he determined that their opportunities should end. He gave them plenty of revelation and invitation, but they would not listen to the shepherd's call for they were not his sheep. We are not the Lord and do not have this knowledge. Our only responsibility, our joy, is to love people like the Lord Jesus does. Graciously telling people the truth, giving people opportunities to respond, calling them to believe in the Lord Jesus, for he is the only Savior. Share what you have. Share about the truth that has changed you. Some will believe, for he has sheep still out there. Verse 40, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. So Jesus' sheep are out there. They will follow when his voice reaches their ears. If the Lord is calling you today, trust his voice and follow his call. Believe, what Je believe that Jesus and the Father are one. Be like these people in the wilderness who believed in Jesus. Don't be like the religious leaders in Jerusalem who considered their uh, Messiah God's chosen one to be nothing more than a liar who deserved death. Consider the tragedy that was their lives. To see all that they saw, to hear all that they heard, but to be shown that they were blind and deaf. Don't take your opportunities for granted. Believe in Jesus. And we'll close for those who currently believe in Jesus, I pray that you will keep maturing in your faith. I exhort you, keep following the Lord's voice. Discern between his voice and all the other voices in the world by sharpening your ear for his voice through consistently studying his word for yourself. His word contains great treasures for you if you are Jesus' sheep. Like this profound truth. Hear this. After Jesus powerfully saves you, he will powerfully keep you safe in his hands. Verse 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Why? No one will snatch them out of my hand. 
snatch is repeated in verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Snatch is a violent action. Dr. Bill Cook pointed out to me in his book, even if an antichrist like the wicked Antiochus Epiphanes, the God manifest, shall rise and seek to crush you, he will not succeed. You are secure in the firm, two-handed grip of Jesus and his Father. Verse 30 is such an encouragement when Jesus says, I and the Father are one. So may this truth spur you to keep following your shepherd's voice. Your final blanks. Keep believing in Jesus. There's security in the oneness of the Father and Son. Let's pray. Lord, we... um, Thank you very much for the truth that you have given us in your word. There are treasures in it, and I pray that all will see and hear that Jesus is the treasure when he calls. Lord, I pray that for those who have not believed in the Lord, truly surrendered their lives and trusted in him, I pray that they would do so even today. May they believe in the Lord Jesus. He is the Messiah, your chosen one, God, and we know this because he and you, Father, are one. Thank you for this truth, and I I pray that you would apply it to our lives. May it encourage for those it needs to encourage. May it convict for those that it needs to convict. Lord, we leave these things in your hands, but thank you for your word, and thank you for Jesus who has come to save us from our sins, in which we are all guilty. Thank you for him who died on the cross and rose again. It's in his name we pray. Amen.